What makes a ghost story believable? We're three Northwestern undergrads on a journey to discover just that. Driving through the American Northeast, touring haunted sites, and uncovering the paranormal, this is Spirited. It was a week into our haunted tour of the Northeast, and our team hadn't yet experienced anything overtly paranormal. Our time in New York was fascinating, no doubt. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I really encourage you to check it out to get the full picture of our exploration into belief. We'd already met some amazing and avid people, walked through seance circles and rogue cemeteries off the highway, and driven hundreds of miles on the toll roads we'd come to resent. But we wanted more. And we wanted different. Don't get me wrong, the Van Horn Mansion was a great place to start. It was your stereotypical haunted house, and it branded itself that way, hosting haunted houses and candlelit ghost tours. But our team was looking for something a little less commercialized. And so we packed up our Corolla and set off for Maine. And Maine was good to us. We found our base in Kennebunk, a small town near the Atlantic coast. The community was friendly, the buildings were old, most of the people we spoke with were eager to share their stories, and the combination of those three facts left us feeling hopeful that our time in Maine would help explain why some people believe in ghosts. But the beach and kind communities weren't what drew us to Maine. Instead, it was the Saco River, or I suppose I should say the curse that apparently flows through it. The river is huge, starting in northeastern New Hampshire and draining in the Saco Bay of southwestern Maine. Centuries ago, in the late 1600s, legend says that several white sailors were floating down the river when they saw a young Native American mother and her baby. Falling in line with institutionalized and historical racism, the sailors acted on a rumor that they'd heard, that Native American babies could swim from the moment they were born. The soldiers gained control of the woman's boat and threw her child in the water. When the baby obviously began to drown, his mother rescued him from the water, only for the baby to die just days later as a result of the incident. The legend continues by saying that the drowned baby was the local tribe's chief's son. Rightfully furious at the actions of these sailors, the chief, named Squando, allegedly placed a curse on the river as payback for his son's murder. The curse requires three people to die by drowning each year in the Saco River. Looking at this legend on its head, there is a lot going on. For starters, there is the inherent racism of the notion that countless deaths are the result of Native American spells and black magic. But there's also the issue of drawing the line between the number of deaths that can be expected to occur in a rapid river normally and the amount of death that starts to seem paranormal. For more on the Saco River curse, we spoke with Leslie, a head librarian at the Dyer Library in Saco. The version of the story that I have heard is that a Native American was, some Native Americans were in a canoe and paddling across the river, and in the canoe was the chief's 
son or daughter who was a very young child or possibly a baby and that some British soldiers approached the canoe and for some reason thought it would be very funny to tip the baby into the river because they'd heard that babies that were Indian could swim and the baby drowned. And so the chief or his wife cursed the people living alongside the river and said that every year from that day forward, three people would drown every summer or every year. It would be very interesting to know historically when that story first crops up. Um, I'm somewhat skeptical of the background of the story. Could have happened, I'm a little skeptical. In our research, there were three main variations of the curse that we found online. The first was the one I just mentioned, which focuses on the tribe chief as the one who cursed the river. The second variation is extremely similar. Same sailors, same baby drowned, only it was a Native American medicine man who placed the curse, not the chief. The third version is most different, but it's also the least well-known. It states that the sailors had kidnapped a young Native American girl and that she drowned when their boat capsized. This version maintains that it was the chief, her father, who cast the curse. We asked Leslie what she thought could have caused these three interpretations of the curse. My own opinion is that if if the legend happened, you know, was created early enough that it would pass down, you know, fireside tales through families and that it would just be altered by repetition and not being well remembered, that sort of thing. But that kind of goes back to the story being basically a fable rather than based on some sort of fact. I'm I'm not buying off on that the, the Native American's curse causes people to drown in the river. I am fully engaged in that they're drowning in the river because it's right there and they're, they have a lot of contact with the river. As you can probably tell, Leslie wasn't all that convinced. The roots of the curse are a bit blurry and problematic, and the river itself, well, it's it's not surprising that people drown in it most every year. Our team took a walk along its shores and saw how calm the water can appear on the surface while currents rage below. We started to think that the Saco River curse might be just a lot of hot air. Well-known hot air, but not exactly the haunt we were looking for. But we were motivated to continue investigating, and so we decided to dissect the curse's history. First, we wanted proof that people really were dying. The team spent an afternoon poring over newspapers from the early 1900s and found that about three drowning deaths were mentioned each year. Of course, it wasn't always exactly three, but we understood why parents might warn their children not to swim in the Saco River. These deaths were common, sometimes even occurring numerous times in the same week. So we figured the curse wasn't really doing enough to keep people out of the water. People continue to drown in the river, you know, almost every summer somebody drowns in the river but or dies on the river i mean we had a death on the river about two weeks ago so on average at least three people have drowned in this river each year this much we knew but we also knew that locals doubted the validity of the curse's legend leslie herself said she was unsure whether the murder of a native american child had ever actually led to some utterance of a curse but she led us to a place where we could find out the Saco Historical Records Room in the Dyer Library. We shuffled our way up a creaking staircase and into a wide room, hidden away from the hustle and bustle one can imagine occurs at a small library in Maine. Inside sat a broad table, shelves full of documents, and a computer set up with a scanner. Leslie was immediately helpful. She began rummaging around the room, grabbing books and folders from all different shelves, and pulling open large drawers. She set us up with two things— primary sources, 
and secondary sources. I felt like I was watching an artist be set free on the page. Leslie, your help was fabulous. Jared, Leslie, and I then went to work deciphering town histories that dated back one, two, even 300 years ago. It felt like we'd never learn whether this specific Native American baby's murder led to some kind of unrest. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, white people have done a lot more to natives than kill one of their young. Why would this specific event be documented? Our researcher's saving grace was the aspect of the story indicating that the child was fathered by a local chief, Squando. One book that Leslie pulled for us, A History of the Indian Wars in New England, which was published in 1677, it mentioned Squando by name. We knew that we were onto something. The book stated that in 1675, Squando's baby died after being thrown into the Saco River by several sailors. This was it. According to the book, Squando was so furious and heartbroken over the event that he declared war. No curse. We wondered whether this book may be conservative. Perhaps it glossed over the curse aspect of the story to avoid mixing fact with wife's tale. So we kept searching. And kept searching. And eventually, we found mention of the curse in a local newspaper article published in 1888, 200 years after the curse was supposedly made on the Saco River. It seems as though the curse and the actual killing of Squando's baby are two completely separate entities, one rooted in primary and secondary source documents, and the other being mentioned only hundreds of years after the fact. Of course, it's not our team's intention to definitively say whether or not the curse is real. We're researching the why, why people do or don't believe paranormal folklore. And in our experience in Saco and the rest of Maine, well, we didn't speak with a single person who actually believes the river is cursed. Rather, most people agreed with Leslie, agreed with the fact that the Saco River is a big, rushing river, and that people drown. And that when tragedy strikes, humans have a tendency to point the finger at something they don't understand. In this case, the blame was shoved onto a Native American chief. False accusation is an unfortunate and timeless habit. Add untimely death to the mix, and it's unsurprising that the people of yesteryear blamed countless drownings on a curse. People may have believed it in the early 1900s because romanticism thrived at the time, and a fantastic story is more fun to believe than fact. From what we heard during our time in Saco, people may use belief in the paranormal as a coping mechanism. This ties into another story we heard in Maine. As we sat at the Dyer Library with Leslie, she told us the story of a family plagued by death that found an excuse in paranormal lore. So this is the Dyer Library, and it was founded by uh, the bequest of Olive Dyer, um, and Oliver Dyer, so Olive and Oliver married, it's very cute, mm-hmm. and we have photographs of them up front. Um, he, his grandfather, Thomas Dyer, married Elizabeth Melkor, and I don't think it was in that generation of Elizabeth's family, I think it was the generation before that, that supposedly one of the Melkor daughters jilted a pirate that she was set to marry. And so he cursed the Melkor family, and he said that none of the, the women in the Melkor family, that their, their sons would live to adulthood or live to bear children or something, you know, so it's like the great. And I've also heard this, that she was, they were cur- cursed by a pirate, I mean, by mm. a witch. 
so could be either one. Our investigation into this story was much simpler than that of the Saco River curse. In fact, Leslie provided us with the mystery solution right from the start. What actually is the case is that the Melkor, somebody in the Melkor family had hemophilia. And so the girls, if you know the genetics of this thing, the girls are not afflicted, but they're all carriers of the dominant trait. It's X-linked. So the, uh, the daughters pass it down to their sons and their sons die. Hemophilia is a genetic disorder that, in simple terms, causes intense bleeding. The bleeding can occur after an injury or in spontaneous episodes. The disorder is manifested most commonly in males, but females who are themselves unaffected can pass the disease on to their children. You might have heard of this in the royal families of Britain, Germany, and Spain. They're all notoriously affected by hemophilia. But... If you rewind to an era when there was little understood about genetics and disease, it's no surprise that there were rumors about what plagued the Melker family. So this was another example of people using folklore to explain unfortunate and unprecedented events. And while that made sense to us, we wanted evidence that this wasn't just a thing of the past. Sure, some people in 19th century Maine might have used ghost stories to explain what reason couldn't. But we wanted proof that this behavior was alive and well. So we headed to yet another haunted house. The homeowner we interviewed wanted to remain anonymous, so we'll call her T. T lives in an expansive white house on the stretch between Kennebunk and Kennebunkport, Maine. It's that house that brought us to her, but her experience with the paranormal started in her childhood. My beginning stuff was the house I grew up in, which was a 10-bedroom I don't know, 13,000 square foot house. It was 1756 was one portion, then it was 1801 was the bigger portion. And, um, but I, I lived there my whole life growing up. So, but I remember little things would happen where I would, I had this, when you get a little bit older, probably like 10, I never wanted any light on, no more nightlight. Like I hated, and then I hated lights because it would keep me up. So I would go to bed. Everything would be off, and I woke up in the middle of the night. Everything on my walls were on the floor. All my lights were on in my room, and I don't have, like, a light switch. It's an older home, so, like, they're individually turned on lights. All of them are on, and I had a series of those horses that people collect, kids collect, and they were all knocked over. T takes a really logical approach in her belief in the paranormal. Simply put, she thinks it'd be anthropocentric to completely dismiss paranormal activities. So was there ever a time in your life when you didn't believe in ghosts? I think I always have, but I think there was a time period where I wouldn't admit it. Now I don't, I've got too many things that have happened. That, that it's, it's almost like, you know, saying there's, we're the only life on, in the universe. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of like saying, you know, you know, the sun revolves around us. It's very short-sighted. T has experienced a lot in this house, but it's not just her. Visitors and former owners have passed down lore about the house, culminating in a long list of ghost stories that often build off each other. One of the experiences T considers most significant involved her son, Jack, and a contractor the family hired to work on the house. T knew the contractor from their childhood and said he'd always had a sixth sense. A friend of mine from high school, it's, it, everybody goes away and it's funny that they come back because it is a great, we're spoiled. 
sorry, where was I? Oh, yeah, so he was coming downstairs. He did work on the, on the attic, and he was coming down, and he had an experience. He refused to tell me until years later. And then, this is strange, Jack, so I'm glad he's gone. He, um, he his bed broke. It was like one of those, whatever, crappy bed. And the guest room is all set, and I'll take you guys up after. And I moved him into the guest room until I could get a new bed. He started acting so strange and kind of belligerent and kind of, and I know he, he was a teenager, but like really out of the ordinary. And so finally, my friend had said it was something to do with that room. So I said, I, you have to tell me, you have to tell me. And so he goes, okay. He's coming down the stairs and he looks over and there's a little girl ghost standing there. And she's in a white puffy nightgown, like definitely from like 1800s. And he has, he, he's always had a sixth sense, but he has this where he can kind of see the scenario and she's scared to go in the room. And then he kind of gets like a flash of what happened. And she caught her uncle molesting her brother. So, but they saw that she caught, and this is something been going on, but the brother who had been molested was this, was the victim and was in the, but she was like, that's wrong. And uncle knew she was going to tell like when the parents got home and he killed her in her sleep in that room. So this was his story. And so I immediately got a new bed, <laughs> got my son out of there. Cause there was just something, that room I always had, um, I made it the guest room cause it gave me the chills. It had uh, suicide poetry written into the floorboards. It had, um, somebody had taken numbers on the wall and staggered them. So it was some sort of a code. And so we sat in this fantastic old house, hearing these stories that a lot of people had contributed to over the years. As someone who had still never had a paranormal experience, I asked T what she felt when there were ghosts present. When you have those experiences, do you hear it or do you see them or what exactly? I don't see them and I've got friends that do. I have friends that actually, I mean like my friend John, John can, he can see them. I don't see them, but I can sense and, they, and they'll wake me up and kind of like my legs are jittery. She tells us about a specific time she felt this way. I had this awful dream, and I was being choked to death. Or I was being choked. I don't know if it was to death, but I was being choked, and it's a horrible feeling. And, you know, you're like, oh, was that a dream? Was that, you know? But I remember I was trying to, my boyfriend was there, and I was trying to wake him up to, like, do something. Probably like three in the morning. And, but I felt like I was being lifted up, and I could actually, in the shadow, I could see the hand but I couldn't see the hand, but the shadow from the neighbor's light. I could see it on the backboard, headboard. And uh, the next morning, very early, Jack walks in and goes, Mom, I had the craziest dream. And I said, what? And he goes, no, because I had the look. And he goes, you tell me first, because he goes, I don't want you lying to match my dream. So I said, well, I had this guy that was definitely a guy, and I was being choked and held up. And... He had a dream that he walked into my room and I was hovering, being choked by a ghost man. We want to note that, to our team, this sounds potentially like sleep paralysis, but we're not the ones experiencing it. 
And the fact that T's son dreamt he saw her being choked that night is uncanny. At the end of the day, driving out of Maine, we realized something about the stories we'd heard and the way we'd been listening. That it's easy to use paranormal folklore to cope with the unexplained, but it's also easy to use disbelief in the same way. What really matters might just be the way you listen. And so we're headed to Vermont, home of the Green Mountains, and a whole lot of controversy. There, it turns out that everything we believe might just be a hoax. Next time on Spirited.